Hi, this is Searching for the Truth, and this is Emily Smokoff. This is Isha Bertwal. This is Lily Jeffs. And this is Naranjana Kutnan. Today, we are going to be looking at algorithm bias in Google search and the effect that it has on its users. So our podcast will be split up into three segments. It's going to focus on the autocomplete feature, and then it's also going to focus on the way that they rank their websites and sort their results, as well as Google Images search results. So maybe let's start with what is bias? What do y'all think bias is? Yeah, um, I think bias is uh, prejudice towards certain minorities. Um, it's really kind of based on people's own ideas and opinions um, and only giving value to those certain groups um, and really discriminating against others. Yeah, and to speak more on that, Lily, I feel like it's, and when we're talking more about like algorithmic bias too, it's something that appears, it's bias that appears within algorithms, uh, hence the name, of course, uh, but it also causes harmful outcomes. It can, like you said, target minority groups, uh, marginalized communities, and it doesn't always happen because of like malicious intent. It can happen just because of the data that the machine is trained on. And this is something that I found super interesting. It's something that's not like intentionally that happens. It's just that past historical data can sometimes be racially biased or sexually biased. Um, and that can really trigger the algorithm to act in a certain way that you wouldn't really expect it to act in. And that can harm many communities. For sure. I also think, I think that algorithmic bias sometimes also kind of reflects the bias that humans naturally have. And then when you put it in an algorithm that is trying to cater to what certain group of people think, it kind of perpetuates some of those biases and it can amplify the effects of it. So I think that's one of like the dangers of algorithmic bias. That's what's scary of like looking through like everything in the news recently about all this bias that's popping up in algorithms is that like a lot of the times it's reflecting like what society is saying and like their training data. And it's honestly really sad. So to just take straight from Google, um, bias is in definition, the prejudice in favor or against one thing, person or group compared with another usually in a way considered to be unfair. Um, and then as a verb, it's the cause to feel or show inclination or prejudice for or against someone or something. So I feel like we were pretty, pretty spot on. Um, Narajna, I know you asked some students what they thought bias was. What were their responses? Yeah, um, I found this pretty interesting. So some of the ideas were that we asked students, what are possible reasons that bias exists on the internet today? And we got quite um, a variety of answers, including one who said social media. A lot of people have a lot of internal bias that they share on the internet, or uh, people are themselves on the internet since they're hidden in certain ways. 
So people are very honest and that can lead to some bias. Um, some people think that bias is coded into the search algorithm, a lack of education and tech companies lacking accountability. Um, and then uh, others also said there are so many sources on the internet and not everyone is educated enough to know how to decide what is true and untrue. So they believe anything they read since the internet is supposed to be reliable. So it kind of has a varied response. Some people think that bias is hard-coded into the algorithm. Some people believe that bias is what users choose to believe on the internet. And some others uh, seem to think that bias is just a reflection on, of what other people already think, and the algorithm is just perpetuating it. Yeah, that's really interesting how you mentioned that bias is kind of perpetuated by what people think, because when I was doing research on the bias, on why Google search is so biased, a lot of it was caused by the users themselves and them trying to perpetuate these ideas, um, especially through the Google autocomplete feature, which I'll go into more detail soon. Um, but they're really able to get these search terms to appear in that autocomplete box by just constantly entering these thoughts that perpetuate bias. So it's really interesting how the algorithm just immediately favors those because they're considered so popular and really doesn't think about the impact that these bias queries are having on people. Yeah, absolutely. I I think, and I think another thing that I really found interesting is that every single person kind of had a very different outlook on what uh, bias is on the internet, which kind of points towards a kind of systemic issue, right? Because all of us use Google. We all use um, the internet in whatever form that is. But bias does exist, but we all have very different ideas of what that is. So I think that points towards something educational and something systemic that we know about bias. Well, I will get into our first first topic of this podcast, which is bias in the autocomplete feature of Google search. So just a preface, um, if you're unsure of what autocomplete is, it's a feature within the search bar on Google that makes it supposedly faster to complete searches that you start to type. Um, and it basically generates predictions um, that are meant to save people time by allowing them to quickly complete the search they're already intended to do. So for example, if you search the query, um, why are my eyes, then autocomplete may complete um, full-on queries uh, relating to the initial first few words that you used. So it might say, why are my eyes brown? Um, so this query is used by a lot of people because it really saves them time um, and they're just kind of able to make that query more efficiently. Now, Google claims that autocomplete predictions reflect real searches that have been done on Google. And to de determine what predictions to show, their system looks for common queries that match what someone starts to enter in the search box. Um, they also consider the language of the query, the location a query is coming from, um, trending interest in a query, and the user's past searches. And so these factors allow autocomplete to show what they, what Google claims to be the most helpful predictions that are unique to a particular location or time. And so in addition to full search predictions, autocomplete may also predict individual words or phrases that are based on both real searches that people have made as well as word patterns found across the web. So it's a pretty complex process Google is using to 
show those autocomplete results. Um, however, we've definitely found a lot of bias with this. Um, so I actually tested this out myself to kind of see what kind of bias Google is showing. And so I searched the phrase, are feminists in the search bar on Google? And some things Google automatically suggested were, are feminists toxic, are feminists violent, and are feminist narcissists? And I just found this really interesting because I think we all know that Google is run by a majority of men. And so I think it's pretty obvious that those who hard-coded this uh, autocomplete feature really kind of had their own bias and prejudices also encoded in this feature of Google. Um, some other searches I made were climate changes and the results were climate change is inevitable, climate change is good, and climate change is not important. So that's another really problematic aspect of autocomplete. And then lastly, I searched the phrase, why is gun control? And Google automatically suggested, why is gun control bad? Why is gun control ineffective? And why is gun control an issue? So I think a common theme I've noticed amongst all of these queries are that they're really about these topics that people have differing opinions on. And so there's kind of an obvious opinion that Google is trying to enforce with these autocomplete results. Um, and a lot of them are really problematic. So have you guys ever noticed any aspects of bias amongst autocomplete like I noticed? Definitely. I feel like I've noticed it, honestly, since before this class. But it's just like this class has made me actually think about it. But it is really problematic when you think about the fact that some people are, you know, like when you're searching things on Google, you're going to actually learn about them. And if you're suggesting these titles that like lead users in a direction that could be like really harmful or like harmful in ideology, like that's, it's just really scary because you like users could really easily get swept into like a place of disbelief. And we'll talk about this later, but there was actually research done on like, you know, how about how they return like vaccination information and they found that like returning anti-vaccination information actually did affect like the user's thought process on it so like you know the information they're returning truly has an effect on its users and if they're suggesting these areas that have like harmful ideologies it can really lead to like consequences and I feel like you know Right now it's all fun and games because it's they're making this cool new thing but not actually thinking about the consequences that not monitoring and not human coding you know allowing this algorithm to run on itself um without like human intervention has um i don't know i think that's scary how about yeah i feel like especially for students like they're constantly trying to seek new information to help them learn and help them in their educational careers. And Google is just kind of the easy alternative, but they don't realize that this information they're being provided is not completely accurate, is not completely unbiased. So that's definitely an issue. Yeah. Which is why we decided to focus on like narrowing our project topics to like queries that result in um, like biased and stereotypical results or bias and stereotypical in this case like responses auto-completed features 
after you type in something having that biased or stereotypical responses because it's just so prevalent and it's also like something that we really want to educate students about so that they can be aware when they're using it you know not blind to the fact that this algorithm isn't perfect yeah definitely yeah I 100% agree with what you guys are saying here and also I can kind of honestly I can kind of understand Google's point of view and Google's statement because it makes sense that when you search like are feminists and then you get a bunch of like negative uh, searches or, you know, search questions, I guess, search queries, whenever you type in those first two words or whenever you talk about climate change, these like controversial topics are talked about a lot on the internet because social media is the perfect platform to, you know, talk about your opinions. Uh, And a lot of people talk about controversial topics on social media and a lot of these topics get a lot of buzz around them. And I feel like when people search up about climate change, they kind of, they hear probably about how it's bad first, honestly, from like one person and they want to search up about it to see if that's actually true. Or they, a lot of people like have attached a negative connotation to the word feminist because many people think that, you know, like feminists are anti-men, which is a whole nother Uh, conversation that we could have I guess but they would search up about that on Google so a lot of these searches I feel are kind of user generated but the problem that happens with this is that the algorithm is not it's not content moderated which I think is what Emily kind of brought up earlier there's no um, moderation that's happening of the content neither is there any like verification of whether this search query is good to actually, you know, show in the autocomplete feature or not, because it can impact a user's search. Let's say like a person, you know, a user doesn't even know what feminism is, and they just heard about the word the other day. So they search up our feminists, or what is feminism, and they have like their search is not even complete. And already there's a bunch of like negative stuff popping up, like our feminists bad or feminists toxic. They're automatically going to click on that, you know, suggested search query, and they're going to get biased results from that, which is something I guess we'll also talk about. We'll talk about search results uh, from search queries, but that's also something that's interesting because I don't necessarily know if it's Google's fault for, you know, having those search queries, search suggestions pop up in the autocomplete feature but I definitely do think they are responsible for not moderating content uh, that is happening in this autocomplete feature of theirs. Yeah, and it's actually really crazy. Um, A lot of groups have kind of figured out Google's algorithm and uh, Mm -hmm. learned that, you know, if I make this query so many times, Google's algorithm, because it's kind of seeing this query as being so popular, it'll kind of start showing it um, once you start making a query. Um, There's actually a lot of right-wing groups that have organized these ways of just jamming these specific queries into Google hundreds of times to really get it to show up in autocomplete. Um, Actually, it was used by some pro-Trump groups, um, and this allowed these really extremist ideas and uh, pro-Trump queries to start to start being embedded in Google's algorithm and showing up um, 
as part of autocomplete. So it's kind of crazy to think that Google is just allowing this to happen. Like you would think, oh, some people are really kind of corrupting this system and we should do something about it. But they're just kind of allowing these white supremacist websites or really problematic groups to just share their their ideas freely, um, even if it's so problematic for the world and for Google's users. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't know there's actually like groups that are kind of, you know, trying to finesse the system, I guess, because I know it's happened on Twitter, which is a whole, it's another platform. Uh, and a lot of like trends happen, I guess, like, I don't know about certain celebrities and their fans, what they'll do is they'll like uh, Jimmy the search so that they'll type in their, you know, celebrity name that they're a fan of and then they'll attach like a positive word to that search so then every time someone searches about this celebrity they'll only see like positive um search suggested search queries and i did not know that people actually did that with google as well that's something interesting that makes me really curious that is super interesting this isn't on the spot but it makes me interested (laughs) in like there's drama going on between Selena Gomez and Hailey Bieber right now. And I'm yes. just curious, like what the Google results right now, if we like autocomplete both of their names, like says about them and if it's like a negative connotation. So I just put in Selena Gomez and honestly, it's surprising. There's not like really anything negative or like positive in a certain sense. There is like one that says Selena Gomez, Haley Bieber. And then if I put in Haley Bieber, the first thing that comes up when you type her name is Haley Bieber, Selena Gomez. But I guess this was a failed experiment. I was just curious when you were saying that, you know, people attach these words with either positive or negative accommodations to people who they do or do not like, whether that would be the case for them since they're a buzzing trend right now on the internet. No, I'm also searching it up too. And there's not much in the autocomplete feature for Google, maybe because like a lot of people search about Selena Gomez and Hailey Bieber in general. So they want to know more like factual stuff about them. Whereas I guess on Twitter, it's kind of just like everyone shares about drama or like current news. So I guess it would be a little different, but yeah, it's kind of interesting how it's different across all platforms, but the actions that people do, um, to know, get their information out there is something that's kind of common across all platforms. Yeah, I mean, I think another aspect of this, though, is I know there has supposedly been drama between Hailey Bieber and Selena Gomez for quite a while now, but um, mm-hmm. I feel like it is a pretty recent topic. Um, and something I learned is that 15% of the searches Google sees every day have never been searched before. So this is kind of presenting a new puzzle for the algorithm to figure out every time. And it doesn't always solve that puzzle in the way Google would hope so, or that it should be solved, um, which kind of causes these problematic results to immediately arise. Um, And it takes a while for Google to identify those problematic queries. That's actually incredible. I didn't realize that there's 15% new queries per day. Yeah, I know. I'm like, what are people thinking of? Like, what new topics do they search? But I guess things are changing every day. There's always new current events going on and that sort of thing. So I'm not surprised. But yeah, it's definitely, that's definitely a tough 
issue to tackle because you can't really prepare for that, I feel like. Well, I think that's really interesting because also a lot of the ideas that people previously have about what um, the search engine biases come from, a lot of it was like um, people thought that it was human started or like the data is already biased and all of that's true. But I think this kind of throws in a curveball because it's a different dimension to the problem itself, right? Because if Google is bringing 15% of searches that have never been searched before, it's kind of it's kind of predicting what people would want to see, which is also in a way scarier because what if those predictions are kind of perpetuating more misinformation or if they're perpetuating more stereotypes and who does that harm? Yeah, it's really make, forcing people to be narrow-minded because if they've never learned about a topic before and autocomplete is presenting these kind of ideas, they're really conform to agreeing with those ideas and only knowing about those ideas, which is not good. Exactly. And like you mentioned previously, a lot of people come to Google to um, to learn, right? Like even as students, sometimes we search up things to see if it's true or not. So Google is kind of perpetuating or is predicting 15% of what we would ask. I don't know, that kind of, that also seems kind of scary to me. And even on a smaller scale, like for the, when like researching the impact that autocomplete has, I found this um, story of, um, from UPI track case. And they were talking about how a court in Japan sided with um, a Japanese man who wanted Google's autocomplete search feature to be suspended because it wrongly linked him with criminal activity. So in you would type in his name, it would put like criminal activities behind it, even though he had like no record, like no history of criminal activity. Um, And the man like remained unidentified, but he decided to seek legal action against the US um, search engine. And he discovered that they did nothing about it. So um, Tokyo's district court approved his petition but Google refused to suspend the like autocomplete function. So when you think about it, like, you know, it has this widespread effect, right? Of when there's thousands of people making search queries about like one specific topic that it can like cause them to be really narrow-minded, but also on a smaller scale too. Like, you know, some people are trying to get jobs, but Google wrongly associates their names with, you know, things that they've never done before. And we all know employers nowadays like look you up when they're going to hire you, right? And the place that they start is Google. And it's like, you know, their autocomplete feature is really truly impacting people's lives. It's not just, you know, it's not all talk. It's like truly making a difference in whether people can find jobs, you know, and it's just a sad I don't know. It's and also the fact that they learned about it and it makes sense that they wouldn't suspend the function of it because it's like a really main part of their like business um, plan. But, you know, you would hope that they would go in and like want to fix this automatically and not harm its user base when they learn that it's like an issue. Yeah, that story is really sad. Um, And I also think that autocomplete is the first information that people initially see even prior to submitting that query that they're making. So it's really triggering these initial thoughts, which can then affect the way you perceive information once you complete that search and get that um, set of results of websites, which 
is something I don't really think about when I'm using Google, but it's definitely triggering those kind of internal subconscious thoughts. Yeah, I think you could even have the power to change what you're looking for because the autocomplete um, kind of generates what people might think is trending or something. And people would click that rather than completing what they were initially going to put into their search results. And that might completely change what they're actually reading their content to, which is also pretty scary. It's going to mislead people in a pretty meaningful and impactful way. While we're still on the topic, I think it's good to transition to when we get those results from making search queries in Google. Um, So just to give our listeners a better idea. So you make a query in Google in the search bar and you click enter and then you're presented with a list of websites. Now, you've probably noticed how when you make this query, you're presented with websites that are listed in a certain order. And... um, These are listed in order of what Google thinks is most relevant to the query you're making. Now, Google claims to give users the most useful information and the search algorithms look at many factors and signals uh, similar to autocomplete where they're looking at the words of your query, the relevance um, and usability of pages um, and your location and that sort of thing. And then that applies Google applies a weight to each of the different factors depending on the nature of your query. Um, Google also uses a process called crawling, which I actually learned about in Info 200 class. Um, And basically crawling deploys this software known as web crawlers, which identify publicly available web pages. Um, And they are also able to determine which websites the user should browse, like how often they should browse them. And they kind of use previous crawls and sitemaps as well. Um, And they're really identifying those websites that best relate to the query made. Um, So they're kind of crawling the different websites available on Google um, and then presenting websites that contain similar words or similar ideas to the query that was made. Something interesting I found was that studies using eye tracking technology have shown that people generally scan search engine results in the order in which the results appear, kind of from top to bottom, and then really fixate on the results that rank the highest. So I think this is really allowing websites that could be problematic to be looked at more frequently than others um, through this ranking system. I don't know if you guys have some experience with that. I know I'm pretty guilty of just looking at the first engine or the first website that pops up on my screen at the top, just because it's convenient and easy. Um, So yeah, what do you guys think about that? I definitely do the same. I think especially because there's like 50,000 results sometimes. I maybe 1%, probably honestly less than that of the time that I search on Google, make it to the second page. Like I always only look at the first page unless it's something for school and I'm looking for like multiple resources for a project and that's pretty much the only time but when I'm like you know searching for like personal information or you know like oh I wonder this and I'll search it on Google outside of school like it's always just the first page I will never go past it how about you guys yeah same here you know that little like pop-up I guess that um Google has for like those the most basic questions. For example, uh, I was 
wondering about naps the other day because I'm not a huge napper, but I, you know, was feeling a bit tired. So I was like, oh, how long should I nap for to feel like energized and refreshed? Because I didn't want to nap for like two hours or so, you know? So I searched that up. I was like, how long should you nap for to feel refreshed? And then in like the big pop-up, I guess, that they have like the very first result and in enlarged in text, it says 10 to 20 minutes to feel more alert or refreshed. But then when you search up, how long should you nap for to feel energized? It's around like 20 to 30 minutes. And both of these times that are kind of like listed as results, they both say that 20 to 30 minutes or 10 to 20 minutes can improve your mood, sharpen focus, reduce fatigue. So it's kind of interesting how just changing the word from refreshed to like energized can also change your results. Even if you don't, even if they don't necessarily mean like different things to you in this context, because of the various like keywords that are on specific websites, different results will pop up also depending on like the relevance and how often it's been clicked and whether it's like a popular website, for example, one of those search results in that pop-up that, you know, popped up once I submitted the search query was from Healthline, which is a pretty popular website um, in terms of like when it comes to health related questions. Uh, So that was something that I found interesting, how just changing the word can change a result drastically and probably give you also the wrong information. Yeah, that's really interesting. I also think in class, we learned about a similar example where um, someone searched something about, I think it might've been cardiac arrest or like a really extreme Mm -hmm. health issue. And Google is kind of like what to do in the case of cardiac arrest or a heart attack. And Google was sharing this information that was completely wrong. You should never do it in case someone is experiencing that health issue. But it was one of those main immediate results that you see at the top of your screen. So it's just so upsetting to imagine the effects that this harmful information could have. It's actually life or death Mm -hmm. um, if people are kind of prone to just taking in that information and doing um, whatever's based on that information. So yeah, that's, that was a really kind of scary aspect of, of Google search results, which is still apparent today. Like you said, Isha. Yeah. And I'm going to be honest, I'm kind of guilty of just, you know, looking at the first result that pops up or the highlighted text that pops up in that pop-up for the first result on Google. Yeah. It's definitely, definitely an issue. And I think it's an issue with the algorithm, probably because a lot of these results that are included in this pop-up search result is from like a bulleted list, or it's just like text that like stands out pretty easily. Or I don't know, it's maybe text that's included a lot on various websites. So the algorithm is like, oh, this is familiar. This is associated with like this topic in multiple websites. So maybe let me just pop it here. So I think that's super interesting, um, but I would love to hear more about the ranking of search results. Like, what do you guys think? And what is what has our research said about this topic? Yeah, I mean, um, so there's this psychologist named uh, Dr. Robert Epstein, and he's come out with a lot of kind of information about the psychology behind Google search results. And he specifically developed this term called the search engine manipulation effect, Um, And it's basically, it describes a hypothesized change in consumer preferences 
um, by and you know voting preferences, other kind of preferences people have towards certain things that are caused by search engines. And so he specifically did research on the 2016 election, and he found that if a person typed Hillary Clinton into Google, the search results would only be positive and would lead you to her charitable donations or maybe successful policies she's implemented. Um, but if you typed in Donald Trump, you would get suggestions about one of his scandals or his bankruptcies. So you could argue that there were kind of more negative aspects of Trump that Google was promoting. Um, so it's interesting. I mean, obviously, we know the result of that election now and Donald Trump did end up winning. Um, it's really interesting to see how this may have affected the votes. Um, Epstein argues that these factors did affect around 78.2 million votes, and it definitely helped um, Clinton get a high number of votes. I mean, we know Google's obviously used to promote political ideas. Um, so it's kind of, I'm not surprised that that happened. Um, but yeah, I think the kind of political controversial topics that we've pointed out from the start are definitely highly affected by Google. That is super interesting too when you think about like the ads that pop up. So like, you know how a lot of times the first five results will be ads. And mm -hmm. I wonder how much that plays a role into, you know, especially like political campaigns or, you know, like I was, I saw an article about like vaccination beliefs, you know, it's if someone on the opposing side were to promote an ad and have it show up, like, you know, it'd be one of the top sorted articles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And apparently um, political campaigns can pay Google to change the headlines on Google search. So that was really interesting. I wasn't sure if that was allowed, um, but yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if like maybe Hillary Clinton's team paid Google to promote those positive ideas. I, I also think it's pretty interesting because we, we did ask students um, if they thought that um, the Google search engine is uh, capable of altering political opinions. And about 50% voted between like on a scale of zero to 10 um, and nine to 10. And so, and the lowest score we got was um, a six. So, and that was only two people. So I think it's pretty interesting that I, I think that at least on the educational front, that most people do think it's possible that political opinions can be altered because of the Google search algorithm and that um, the internet and the algorithm has a significant role to play in politics today. That's And I feel like that represents, you know, I, I think we should take that that pulse here. Do you guys believe it can change political opinions? I think it can. Yeah, definitely. Especially if people don't know a lot about um, political candidates running. I think I've done this before where I'm filling out the voting form and I'm, I hear or I see someone's name and I'm like, hmm, I don't know a lot about them. So yeah, I end up Googling their name. And I mean, a lot of the times I do try and go to the candidate's actual website because I know they're the ones sharing that information. But, you know, you do have the other aspects of Google search results where you're presented information immediately, those bigger text boxes. And so that can, I'm sure, sway people's decisions when voting. Yeah, 100%. I would agree. Uh, especially for young voters, I feel like, again, like Lily said, like they don't really know much about candidates. 
they also probably just don't even know much about how like elections work, what certain policies mean about taxes, like the economy, what that kind of represents for us. So just by them searching up about that um, and then getting these like biased results that are ranked due to like ads or, you know, intent behind political campaigns uh, can definitely alter their opinions, I believe. And I have also been someone who's, you know, just like looked at the couple first search results, but I do try to like look through a lot of sources, not just go to one um, if it's not something that's trustworthy or not coming directly from the candidate themselves. Yeah. And I think this whole process of ranking search results is also uh, caused by the usage of AI. So Google search uses many different AI systems um, in order for it to function. One of them is called RankBrain. So RankBrain determines the most relevant results to show in response to search engine queries like we were talking about. Um, It uses data gathered from users' interactions with previous search results um, to really predict which pages will likely get clicked on. Um, And then it orders these search results in a way that is most relevant to what the user is looking for. Um, There's also some other technologies that are more recent. Um, I know we've talked about BERT a lot before in class. Um, So for our listeners, BERT is another AI language model used to really better understand a user's search intentions without needing to analyze past search queries they made. Um, And it's actually based on Google's recent uh, research on transformers, which are models that process words in relation to all of the other words that come before and after that sentence rather than in a one-by-one order. So this technology is pretty crazy. It's really kind of looking at a query as a whole rather than separating each word one-by-one. And I'm sure that's affected the way that or the types of results we're getting from Google search um, a more another more recent AI technology that has been incorporated into Google search is called MUM. And this is used to answer complex questions that people make that don't really have those direct black and white answers. Um, and it supposedly better understands the intent behind people's questions to provide them with the most helpful responses. Um, and it uses multiple forms of content, including images, text, and quantitative data to generate a thorough and relevant answer. So... Well, I think this AI is definitely beneficial to the performance of Google search. Um, It's probably even more perpetuated these um, aspects of bias because I feel like now Google's kind of relying on more of this technology, which we've discussed this entire quarter is not always helpful to people. Um, Sometimes you do kind of need that more human aspect to it. But yeah, it's really interesting how Google is just kind of more and more using AI technologies in order to operate the Google search system. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts or opinions toward using AI in Google search, if you think it's beneficial or not. I mean, I understand why they're doing it because like, you know, they're trying to make their service the best service and they're trying to do things that have never been done before. And they're also trying to stay on the competitive edge and like ahead of other companies that are trying to take their place. But I think that one thing that is hurtful about it is that they're not considering the actual impact it's having. And, you know, there's all this research that we've spent only a quarter, like 
gathering and we could spend years gathering and we would have so much more information about how it really does have an impact on its user base and its users' beliefs. And it's just a little sad that there isn't more intention behind the results, you know, Mm -hmm. intention behind the AI algorithms that they're using. Obviously, there are these up and coming models that are like doing new and exciting things. But I don't know, I feel like more thought needs to go into the intent. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah, I I definitely agree. I think I think a lot of times I think Google is using AI uh, as a competitive edge because AI today is kind of hyped up to be this like new and up and coming technology and that it can optimize things. So I think the way that Google wants to use it is like they want to optimize their search results or make it faster or make it more convenient for users. And that all sounds great on the business front, right? Because it's providing what the customers potentially want. They want more like niche search results or they want things that actually interest them. But the issue with that is that it does come with these drawbacks and they're pretty significant and like the impacts of them aren't fully considered. And um, we asked students about uh, what they thought about Google BERT. And I thought it was pretty interesting. 75% of students did not know what Google BERT was at all. So with that in mind, I wonder if they knew about any of the other kinds of uh, AI that Google uses. And um, the perception of Google BERT was was also kind of interesting because even with the people who did know, the 25% that knew what Google BERT was, they didn't know much about it. They said, it's all right. I'd be concerned if Google uh, entirely replaced their search engine with it, or they've just heard of it, but they don't know what it does. So I think it's pretty interesting that on the educational front, Google BERT is still sort of like a a topic that hasn't been talked about much yet. Yeah, I definitely didn't know anything about BERT prior to taking Info 350 class. Um, So I think this just really goes to show how people don't know the technology or kind of just how something functions behind the scenes. They just really take it for granted um, and use the front end of the interface despite knowing or despite them not knowing how problematic it is behind the scenes, which is really interesting. Yeah, definitely. And looking like at the impact that these search results and like the way that they're sorted have, um, there was a study titled The Impact of Search Engine Selection and Sorting Criteria on Vaccination Beliefs and Attitudes to Experiments Manipulating Google Output, which also shows that you can really manipulate Google Output to get the information that you want. Um, just from the title of this study, but they looked into how Google outputs um, results from searching about vaccinations and how they impacted the users viewing the results. And they found that the selection and sorting of results plays a vital role in online health seeking information. And they found that algorithms which deliver credible and researched advice result in a positively impacted user. And where algorithms return biased information results in opinion changes within their users. So, you know, like the way they're presenting this information and what users seeing truly has an impact on their belief system. So when they're, you know, prioritizing results that, oh, it's just like clickbait or they just have the most views, it can be like really harmful if that 
information is perpetuating, you know, these ideals that hinder people from making like informed health decisions and see information that isn't from credible doctors, credible sources, credible research. Um, So I don't know, this can have a really big implication on people's lives. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I think we've seen so many instances of that already. And I think as technology is evolving even more, um, and Google continues to be that front runner in terms of all the different search engines available. Um, I'm a little paranoid to see where it will go. Um, I think we've seen so many instances of it having a negative impact of its bias, having a negative impact on people already. So yeah, we'll have to see what happens as people continue to use Google search. I'm curious about how this, uh, this looks like for Google images, uh, because the actual search results are ranked, as we said, there's a lot of bias in how they're presented to the user. So I was wondering, is there bias present in Google images search? And how does that look like? Yeah, I was actually just about to go into that. Um, It's definitely an aspect of Google that I'm really excited to talk about. There was so much research done on Google images and how bias is present in this feature of Google search. Um, So just to describe what this feature exactly is. So users can make a search query in Google and press enter. And there's an additional tab on Google labeled images where they can uh, get image results for that search. So, you know, this is a lot of different photos that are supposedly relevant to their query. Now, John Mueller, who's a Google search advocate, claims that what happens when a, when someone types in a query on Google is that this query is sent to a bunch of different indexes and a lot of different search systems within Google. Um, and they kind of tell Google how relevant the results are that they have. Um, and the image search system Uh, might come back and say that these images are kind of important for this query. And so here are the set of images I have for that. And so it's really these systems that are trying to understand how relevant the results are and uh, how they can bring back these images using an automated decision. Now, I kind of mentioned this vaguely before, but to put it uh, specifically, 77% of Google's global technology workforce is male. Um, in senior leadership roles, Google is 73% male. And so the company's search algorithm is really a reflection of what that company is made to be. Um, and so I think we found already that uh, there's a lot of aspects of Google that are sexist. And so with Google images, I've definitely, well, we've all definitely found that that's apparent as well. Um, one important researcher we did a lot of work with um, or work focusing on it. Her name's Safia Noble, and she's a researcher at UCLA, and she's written a book called Algorithms of Oppression. And in this book, she's pointing out that Google suggests racist and sexist image results um, due to those kind of inherent biases within the company and its workforce. So I know, Isha, you uh, knew about Safia prior to starting this project. So what can you share about her and her work? Yeah, so... I personally found out about Safia and her work uh, through a computer science course that I took. And we were talking about like the implications of these algorithms of oppression and how they can really impact communities. And personally with 
Noble's work, it kind of just stood out to me because there are two specific topics that um, she kind of introduces this book with. One of them is about like the sexist search results that Google shows up uh, or, you know, pops up with whenever you search something related to black girls. Uh, So that's more related on like the search result side. Uh, But basically they would Google and the results would sexualize uh, black girls and a lot of the results that just initially pop up would kind of be kind of demean um, black girls. And it didn't really represent uh, the community as a whole uh, because of the bias that was there was present in the algorithm. Another thing is that for Google images, uh, Noble talks about how whenever you, I think there's this one scenario, there's one study that she mentions where if you search up just black people, Google images, what it would do, it would have like people, black people, but then there'd also be images of gorillas because the algorithm like associated black people with gorillas, which obviously is really harmful to the community. It's not right at all. Um, But because the algorithm was built in a certain way and it was trained on data that perhaps had animals in them and humans of various colors, it didn't really identify the difference between those images, um, which can definitely be harmful to many communities and especially can impact the Black community um, in a negative way. Definitely. And just adding on to that, when people began pointing out that Google was misidentifying Black people as gorillas in 2015, Google's response was simply to no longer use gorilla as a depictor for those um, individuals at all. So they didn't want to fix their algorithm. They just chose to break this kind of depictor so Google could no longer identify gorillas with Black people. So I really think Google was just trying to take the easy way out here, and they really weren't addressing the issue and how they were supposed to be. That's scary that, you know, fixing broken pieces can only, like, last for so long when the whole entire structure is broken. And, like, I feel like this is putting a Band-Aid on a fix that, you know, needs serious attention. And this was, what, 2015? And the fact that they're still doing Band-Aid fixes to this day after all of this research has come out is, I don't know, I just feel like it's a little, not to say irresponsible, but a little irresponsible that like Band-Aid fixes aren't going to last forever, especially when their algorithm is in itself like really hurtful. And I feel like the algorithms we talked about before, right, like the sorting of search results and the autocomplete feature they, you know, returned harmful results, but Google Images really has, like, an issue towards racism and sexism. Like, I feel like just blatantly, it's, like, so much more harmful than, like, the things we've talked about before, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. And actually, despite Google claiming that they fixed this issue with the association between Black people and girls in 2015, I learned that there was another case later in 2016 in which Google image search results for the query three black teenagers delivered mugshots of African-American teenagers, whereas similar search results for three white teenagers delivered these kind of wholesome and all American results that portray these white people kind of in a happy and positive way. And so 
so these the search engine is just continuing to reinforce these existing societal stereotypes and really dis disproportionately impacting already marginalized communities. So yeah, I totally agree, Emily, how Google's just continuing to promote these racist and sexist ideologies, which we've been working on as a society for so many years to try and eliminate. Um, but this search engine that is the most popular search engine in the world is continuing to promote these problematic ideas, which I think is just really horrible. Yeah. And even as of 2020, I found like another research study that looked into Google's image search algorithms and um, like what the biases that stem from it were. And it found that it really discriminates and stereotypes women in non-white social groups. And this is in 2022, right? Like this is like literally last year. So this is still happening. Um, I think we all know it's still happening, but just the fact it's happening on a systemic level that's literally being like tested and found still is really sad because I don't know, I feel like this has huge implications and a big impact on their user base. And I don't know, there's just significant reason to worry about like the biased results. Um, I don't know. I feel like we want to move forward as a society, as you were saying, Lily, like we're supposed to be, you know, becoming a nicer place to live. And that's just not what Google's representing in their images. They're promoting like harmful ideas. Researchers at NYU conducted a number of studies to really determine how the level of inequality in society itself transfers into the level of bias in which algorithms output. Um, and from that, how this exposure to this bias output from Google search influences uh, decisions people make and how this bias is further spread. They really gathered data from uh, the Global Gender Gap Index, which provides a ranking of gender inequality across uh, many different countries. And then they attempted to evaluate the level of gender bias in search results people were making and other forms of algorithmic bias. Um, and they did this by examining words that should ordinarily provide an equal chance of referring to a man or a woman. Um, and the algorithm had to assume that it could either be a man or a woman, such as a student or a human, which kind of have these um, non-gender aspects to them. The, and then the study conducted searches via Google for these phrases um, for these different countries. And so what was really interesting was the results of the study showed that the proportion of images with a male bias after searching these kind of non-gender terms like student or human was higher in countries with higher levels of gender inequality. So I think this really shows also an interesting aspect where Google's taking these kind of aspects of the location the user's searching from and really taking that into account in the Google image results they're showing. So yeah, I think I guess if you live in a country where there's a lot of gender inequality or gender uh, or sexist ideas being promoted, then you're bound to get these Google image results that are also sexist and conform to these uh, gender inequality ideologies. So, yeah, I think that's just another aspect of Google search that people don't necessarily take into account, um, but the location is definitely a big part of the results you get. And it's just continuing to promote these problematic thoughts and ideas, which Google may not even know much about because, you know, Google is an American-based company. They come out of Silicon Valley. 
Um, but they may be sharing these ideas that come from these countries across the world that have these different and more kind of discriminatory beliefs compared to the U.S. So, yeah, that's just another another issue with Google that I think people really need to take into account. That's actually super interesting because when you think about it, like from a high level, it just seems that like Google is kind of adapting to its environment. So like if there are some countries that have more specific gender roles kind of, you know, introduced in their culture that the public generally follows, they're more used to, Google's probably going to, you know, cater towards those users in a specific way versus like them catering towards Americans or people or countries that, you know, don't really have those gender roles or fight against, fight back against those gender roles. So I think it's kind of interesting how Google's kind of adapting to the environment. They're kind of trying to satisfy their users, which I can honestly see, like I can accept that, but I think it does. I don't know. I have a question for you all. Do you think that does more harm than it does good? I think it's interesting because say you're in this particular country and you're using Google search, you're already used to these types of ideas. So Mm -hmm those may be helpful for you because you're kind of getting the information you expect and that you maybe want. However, that information you're getting may not be good. Um, And like we've seen, you know, it could be in these countries where they don't treat men and women as equal. You're continuing to get information that reinforces that, which is not right. Um, And I don't think Google should be promoting those types of ideas like it is. Yeah, it's kind of ironic because like you go to Google, you use search algorithms to learn new things. But if Google is kind of adapting to the so-called environment that you kind of live in, you're not really learning anything new. You know, like you said, you're just reinforcing the ideas that you kind of already know, which, again, is another interesting topic. I also feel like it's like scary because it's easy to say like, oh, it's, you know, like, oh, it hasn't affected me or, you know, like the way that they sort their results hasn't affected me. Like, you know, I still stay strong to what I like believe in, but I have no clue, you know, it's like, has it affected me? Has the results that Google images has like returned and Google sorting has returned affected me? And I just don't know it. You know, it's, I feel like measuring impact of like these areas is honestly really difficult because we know it's a problem but what impact has it had on its users you know and it can be at a really deep level that we can't measure. Naranjana was there any um, survey results we got about people's perception of Google images and any experiences they've had with it? Yeah, um, so I, when asked um, students if they believed that there was a possibility of search neutrality, and none of them thought there was any kind of search neutrality, which I think is kind of interesting and connects to what you were talking about on um, how uh, Google is like filtering these images too. But I think I think that um, the part that's that's kind of scary to me is like, what you guys were mentioning before, um, how uh, when you search up stuff on the internet today, I think it's prioritizing what consumers want to see, right? Like based on where they are, based on all these different factors. And so there's no way for the images to be like neutrally um, sorted or filtered when users input something. 
And people had very different ideas on why this happens. Like some people thought that it's because of how the the images themselves are ranked or um, that each person wants something different or that Google itself is just biased. Um, people have very different ideas, but I think I think it it kind of centrally connects back to the point that the algorithm itself, both for search and for images, kind of prioritizes the consumer, prioritizes um, speed and efficiency versus what's harmful. And I think that's pretty scary because today it's really easy for misinformation or for um, harmful uh, stereotypes to get spread quickly because of the algorithm. Yeah, I definitely agree how Google's really prioritizing getting people what they want, even if what they want isn't right. Um, Something interesting I found was when you search for someone famous who is male and someone famous who is female, which in this case of a research study someone did, it was Robert Downey Jr. and Scarlett Johansson. um, The results for Robert Downey Jr. portrayed him in this positive light. So they had these Google images relating to his physical appearance. Um, They kind of displayed aspects of like his workout. They had these tags like handsome, cute body. So really making him be portrayed as like this handsome guy. But in comparison for Scarlett Johansson, it really, the Google image results really sexualized her. You know, there were kind of these uh, search tags associated with the images like bathing suit or like parts of her body. So in comparison to this male actor, Robert Downey Jr., for Scarlett Johansson, she was just being sexualized and it was all the Google image search results were only about her body and not anything about her actual skill as an actor or her different accomplishments. So I think that's just another example of how Google is delivering things that it thinks the public want, but uh, they're not always right. Yeah, that is really interesting. And also it's like, you know, two famous people who both I feel like are on a level semi-sexualized by like viewers and it's interesting how even their search results are like so different when they you know have been in both like action movies like super similar actors just of the different genders. One last example I want to bring up is actually a study conducted here at the University of Washington um also looking into the sexist Google image results that uh, Google search result, uh, Google search produces. Um, So they found that when you do a Google image search for the phrase CEO, 11% of the people depicted in those Google image results were women compared to there actually being 27% of CEOs in the US who are women. So there's this huge disproportionation of people who are CEOs and they're really continuing to enforce that idea that men are meant to be CEOs. The men are meant to be these leaders, um, whereas women are kind of these subordinate individuals who would never be able to work in that position. Um, And that's definitely reflective of Google's workforce and um, kind of predominantly male workforce, especially. Definitely. And your heart has to break for like the little girls who are, you know, looking up CEOs on Google or doing class projects and they just don't see themselves, which is why I think also like, you know, representation matters and the way that we represent information really matters and makes a huge impact on the people around us. So we have, I don't know, it just 
you would hope that Google would want to be a part, especially with how big of a platform they have, of making a positive impact in representation and making people feel like they're represented in the right way. And we're back. So welcome everyone to the expert interview portion of our podcast. Previously, you heard us talking about our opinions and our research regarding the features of Google search, like the autocomplete feature, the search result ranking, and the Google image search. Now what we're going to be doing is interviewing a fellow expert who is interested in this field and has been working in this field uh, and is familiar with search algorithms and the bias that's present within them. And they'll be answering our questions, also addressing some opinions that other students have and possibly debunking any myths. So just to introduce the expert that is here with us for today's podcast episode, it's Professor Kevin Lin. Thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us. So Kevin, just to share a little bit of his background, he has completed a master's in computer science at the University of California in Berkeley and is now a staff member at the University of Washington in the computer science department. And he teaches data structures and algorithms as one of the courses. And in addition to like teaching technical concepts in this data structures and algorithms course, which is all about Java and teaching students about data structures within Java. He also includes a lesson about how algorithms can impact communities, which I found very beneficial when I took this course. And that is also something that overlaps with the research that we have done for this project. Hence why we reached out to Kevin to interview him for this episode. So without further ado, I think we'll just get on with the questions. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Lin, again, for your time. Um, So we have a few questions for you. And the first one is, um, we asked a bunch of students about what their thoughts on algorithm bias and misinformation were. And um, one of the questions, basically, our our survey participants said that the search results are ranked and filtered based on what the algorithm predicts is the most relevant and what the user likes a lot. And a lot of participants seem to understand that search engine algorithms are based on a user's personal data. So meaning that Google has access to their location, their search history, things like that. Um, Could you give us some insight on how true this is and maybe debunk some of these thoughts or uh, clarify some of these thoughts? Yeah, certainly. Thanks for asking that question. I think um, one of the things that definitely comes to mind is that if you've ever searched for a place like a, a restaurant or a business that has like multiple branches, oftentimes Google will be able to suggest ones that are closest to you. So to at least to that extent, you're already seeing how location is factoring into your search results, that it's picking, for example, the closest X restaurant or closest X branch of some nationwide chain <laughs> of restaurants or places or businesses and offering that as a suggestion. And, and you're right, in a way that does make that result more personal, more useful, more relevant to some metric of you know, knowing where you are. And in other ways, too, they might also be customizing the um, search results so it's better and more useful to you as well. Now, I think the extent of that is hard to say unless you actually have the inner workings or understanding of how it's actually implemented. And 
one of the key parts of getting that information is that Google does not provide like information about that uh, very publicly. Um, in fact, one of the areas of work for a lot of businesses is this idea of search engine optimization. How do you make it so that your, your business or your whatever um, listing that you have is highly ranked in terms of user search results? And that work is oftentimes looking at things that um, may be connected, may be valuable to users. Like how often is it that a user would actually click through to your search result if it's say in the top 10? And maybe that, that would kind of make it more meaningful, more useful to a lot of users who are finding that query. Um, so to that extent, there is this aspect of, you know, trying to have personalized and useful information. At the same time, I think one of the things that you'll be looking at is um, uh, as you're making multiple search results, uh, as you're making multiple search queries, maybe you make one query, you weren't able to find what you're looking for, you make another query. I think there may also be work that's happening in the algorithm too, to examine, you know, hey, if you weren't able to find what you're looking for with your first question, and your second question is like adding another keyword or adding two keywords to make it more refined, maybe there's ways in which that result is being um, refined with you as you go as well. Um, I think a lot of the work that I've been looking at though, in terms of the work that's more like research back on this, rather than just like, these are my experiences using the search engine, I've really looked at um, issues around algorithmic bias and um, the ways that I've been looking at it are from the perspective of, of in what ways does Google prioritize certain results? And how are those results, for example, not necessarily representative of the values we want, we may want to have in the world? And you know, that really goes to the, a question of what values we want in the world and how are those values then reproduced in the rankings themselves, in what is foregrounded to us. Knowing that, you know, even though Google may be able to return all 100 million search queries for the thing you want, really you're not gonna look past the first 10 in practice, right? And so I think that ranking and, and this idea about search ranking that you brought up is really important. Yeah, absolutely, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I think, I think that clarifies a lot of it. Um, and just to follow up with what you were saying, do you, do you believe that the search a search uh, engine algorithm is more on a personal side? Like, um, so if a user has used the search engine, they have all the information about the user, and so they try to um, filter the results based on the user. Or is it more a holistic sense where they know what a lot of people are trying to search, and so they're giving the user what they think most people would want to see? Yeah, I think this this is tricky for me to say, and um, partly because I've mostly spent more time reading on other reading on the algorithmic bias side rather than say the personalization side. Though those two pieces are connected, um, as I was mentioning earlier, that the idea of algorithmic bias and the ways in which search results are ranked can be connected to the fact that your search results are personalized. They're slightly also slightly different topics um, if you think about it that way. Um, from what I do know about personalization of results. Um, is that there is an aspect in which Google is looking for what are trending articles, trending news things, how are those going to be captured in people's results? And there is a degree of which when you're running such a large scale system like Google's, there will be some amount of like reusing commonly, you know, in trending results. Like if you want to say there's like 100,000 people searching for what's the score of the latest NBA or NFL game, that's going to be cached, it's going to be saved somewhere in a system that it's easily retrieved. And that information, the information retrieval aspect of that is both an efficiency thing in order to be able to answer that many queries at scale, and also a kind of responding to the personalization side. Like people are just looking for the same information about what's the current score or what is the current play-by-play -play now that it's like halftime and we're on break or something. And so being able to answer those questions, providing some degree of, of common knowledge is also an interesting facet that you raised. So I feel like, you know, you're pointing out there's an interesting tension here around thinking about Google as a design problem where simultaneously you want to be able to provide useful, relevant personal results. But also there's a question around what is this idea of public knowledge and the public sphere and the public forum as a service that a search engine is providing. 
that we can all share some kind of general public knowledge that is commonly understood or commonly accepted. Um, and there's a tension between those two that you're pointing out as well, that maybe something that would engage me as a reader, just my, my personal interests, my hobbies, like the things I'm interested in seeing may not be aligned with results that may be, you know, in terms of that public public service opportunity or feature or goal, or if that is a goal at all. And I think that that's something we can talk about too, is like, in what ways are the incentives aligned or misaligned for that to happen? Those are really interesting points. Thank you so much for answering that question. Uh, speaking more about like algorithmic bias, we have another question kind of centered around that, but this is specifically for the autocomplete feature of Google search. So I'm sure you're familiar with the whole autocomplete features when you type something in the search bar and then you get like suggested search queries that pop up. So for Google, uh, in our research, we've kind of identified many biases in the autocomplete feature that can cause the algorithm behind it to target marginalized communities, specifically making it racist and sexist. Mm -hmm. So many of our suggested, many of the suggested search queries that kind of pop up when you type in mm -hmm. keywords like feminist or like managerial positions like CEO or show results that kind of cater towards a specific group. So it can put the word feminism in like a negative limelight um, by saying that feminists, like are feminists toxic or are feminists narcissists, which doesn't really represent what feminists are wholly and what feminism is truly as a concept. So it kind of promotes these negative stereotypes possibly because of this biased algorithm. So we also asked uh, you know, the students through our survey about whether Google is responsible for filtering these results. And there were a variety of replies that we got. Some of the students said that, yes, they should be responsible because Google is providing information to the public. So they should be, you know, moderating this content, but it's also the user's, you know, responsibility to fact check whatever Google is providing them with before they actually just blindly go and search. And some students said that, Google doesn't filter anything at all. Like they don't moderate the content. They don't really check the autocomplete feature. They don't really care about the algorithm or they only take out certain suggested search queries if it's like a very, it's like really toxic. It has like a high toxicity score. So those are some of the replies that we got. Um, and we were wondering if you believe that Google moderates the autocomplete feature and if not, should they and why? Because it kind of brings up this question or this argument of users wanting to express themselves completely versus not wanting to harm other user groups. So we want to promote like expression, but we don't want to censor other people's expression, but we also don't want to harm individuals. So what's your take on moderation with the autocomplete feature? Yeah, um, this is an interesting question. Um, <laughs> I certainly do believe that Google does do moderation, but the way I see it is that um, the whole task of presenting autocomplete results or search results at all is always going to be a moderation task in that, like I mentioned earlier, you're, you have all these hundreds of millions of results to present. How do you choose what to present? And how do you choose, let's say the top 10, because those are in practice really the ones that matter in terms of saying out of all the possible egg trades, all the possible things, no matter, you know, no matter whether you do it explicitly, like I'm saying, you should not see these items or whether it's implicitly through ranking, the ranking of those results, there's a moderation process happening. And the question then is just to what extent or to what values, how is that process 
or the algorithm behind it, how is that process formulated, designed? What are the values that go into that? Are those aligned with Google's values as a company? Uh, the employees at Google, just to be clear, that there's an aspect to which employees have a say in that too, because they're also part of that company and, and being able to shape the direction that it runs. Um, as well as other stakeholders, um, Google being a publicly traded company, there's also you know the, the money side of that, the, uh, the sh shareholder side of that as well. But also I think increasingly we've been bringing up this topic of public interest too. Like what does it mean to have search engines as a kind of public commons and, and library function in place of governmental ent entities having that same level of control that they would have maybe 50, 70 years ago. So yes, I definitely do they th think that they moderate um, in the sense that they're at least doing the ranking. And, they're, they're, and I think oftentimes they are explicitly thinking about in what ways can we make sure that, for example, ideas are not misrepresented and that ideas are not necessarily they want to hear the both sides of it. I think sometimes that can be an erroneous argument to make when, for example, we don't want falsehoods. Like if a both sides situation is coming into one side is making an argument that like, we should probably like tell the truth <laughs> about this history, historical fact. And one side's like, no, we should not <laughs> recognize our history. Um, there ends up being a tension there. And I think oftentimes that tension is explored from a political or at least partisan angle that, you know, some parties are more interested in this, these set of truths or these set of histories. Others people are interested in this set of histories and the histories we choose to follow and believe and, and give weight to are kind of membership into these groups and membership into the identities. Um, and that's so tricky I think, to navigate when you're trying to figure out how to design a technology for this public common, um, especially when there's like loud people on both sides <laughs> trying to make, uh, make that decision even harder to execute on. Um, so it really just comes down to the values of the company. And I think what makes it a little bit hairier and trickier to go through is when you are in this kind of publicly traded situation and when you're in such a big company that it is hard to kind of have a large shared sense of culture. You know, some of, something that we oftentimes hear with tech companies, or at least the past decade was move fast and break things, the Facebook motto. If you think of that as a set of values, that's not saying anything about what you want to do with the technology, with actually what, how it affects the world, how it relates to the world. And similarly, I think it is hard just by the nature of the way the companies are set up, that they are these multinational, multicultural, uh, hundreds of thousands of people scale companies that it is hard to, even within a company to, agree on what it is that we want to achieve with that. Um, certainly you can have it be very top down, but it, it is tricky. Um, to the extent that they actually do the moderation or ranking, um, I think there's also kind of another dimension to that, which is the technical side. You're talking about how do you actually do this? And I think one of the trickier parts is that the information on the web is not equally represented. If you think about the kinds of, let's say, oral histories that are not shared on the web, things like, you know, and that may be for better or for worse, not, for worse, not there, things like people's families or their cultural histories that are rooted in very much like you know, I would talk to my parents or my grandparents to hear about their stories. Those kinds of stories aren't things that I would post on the internet. Uh, though you may see this increasingly like Facebook posts are public, perhaps. But I think that is, this is still kind of a relatively untried ground and that this work is unevenly distributed. That people have, who have more access to technology are the ones who are on the leading edge of posting that material, are being able to write the history of what is going into the search engines. So I think in order to actually address this, even once you have values for your company, values for your platform set up, then there's a question of how you achieve goals around that you want to have that's achieved when you're in this context where information is not equally well distributed, the sources you're drawing from, some people have more access to technology, some people are more uh, interested in sharing their histories and their traditions through that technology and their information that's embedded therein. Um, what are the histories and the traditions and the knowledge that is not shared because it's more oral or it's passed down in other forms that can't be easily processed in this textual format? 
I think those are all kind of interesting challenges for us when you're thinking about this question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, that that makes a lot of sense. And thank you very much for answering that question as well. And I, I know you mentioned a bit that a lot of your research has been about um, bias in search engines and things like that. So pertaining to that, uh, we actually asked our survey participants um, about search neutrality, whether they think it exists or not. And we got a 100% rate for everyone thought that search neutrality doesn't exist. And they believe that information on the web is biased and due to the ranking of their results, uh, the algorithm in the search engine is inevitably biased. So based on this, uh, what impact do you think the lack of search neutrality has on Google users? I think one of the things that is trickiest about Google is that they've set up this persona for their search engine that is to have no persona at all, right? That is just like this kind of blank, um, a blank interface. And there's even in the idea of Google's kind of blank white background and clean, simple interface, that itself is a cultural norm that is centered on kind of um, a, a white male perspective. And I'm actually saying this from a research background, okay? So people like Katarina Ryanke in CSE has actually done research on website cultural, our cultural designs are culturally loaded in that, for example, if you've ever used a website that's based in Japan, You'll notice it's just like full of like text everywhere. It's kind of hard to read. It's kind of really messy and like disorienting for my brain, for my Western oriented brain. But that's a format that works because it's a culturally kind of situated, culturally designed interface. Now, if you think about it from the perspective of Google and it's presenting it as if it's like, you know, it's it's plain white, it's minimal, it's a simple background. It's just getting you straight to the results kind of thing. Maybe with sponsored ads in between um, that are labeled as such. Arguably, you know, whether or not you can actually tell that apart is an interesting kind of question for on the design side too. But within all of that, what I'm trying to get across is that there's this persona that I think Google is trying to convey, which is that it can be trustworthy through the design of the website, at least trustworthy to a Western audience um, and their tastes. Um, and I think that that can be harmful if you're coming from the perspective, as your respondents have said, that, well, there is value. There are values that are embedded in the ways in which these results are ranked. Whether those values are connected to where am I searching from? Like I mentioned earlier, it's going to suggest me locations that are closest to me. So recognizing, understanding, seeing that as a value that is actually part of the search um, result that's responding, that's kind of like a simple level that maybe seems harmless at first. But when you go into the kind of other examples and questions around bias that we've been talking about recently, things like, for example, misrepresenting or trying to you know, foreground the histories that are or, or the knowledge that is more common or knowledge that is, for example, uh, more incendiary, for, for lack of a better word, um, incendiary, um, uh, that, that can be kind of harmful when you're thinking about the ways in which those values are foregrounded. And then to present that on this kind of plain white background and plain white design is a way to say that this is kind of a neutral or kind of like factual or, or giving it weight, even though maybe you are saying this is like someone else's post, or this is like there are someone else's website. Um, I think just by lending it through the design of the platform itself, it kind of conveys that I don't have a personality. And by that lack of personality, you're assuming that it is um, all knowledgeable, all knowing, right? And I think that's also kind of a question for, as we go into, let's say, the world of home assistance as well, and um, children's experience with these technologies, there's also a similar set of questions around trustworthiness and robotics. And there's a, that's a huge area too, around how can we kind of communicate the limits of a robot's knowledge? And in the case of the search engine, you can think of that as like a stand-in analogy for that robot, where we're saying that the way we painted the robot is we try to show it in this extremely plain, extremely you know distanced and scientific almost kind of personality, as opposed to something that's emotional, like colorful, or or, or or complicated or convoluted. Those are adjectives we don't typically use with the Google web interface. 
but there are ways in which you might actually communicate uncertainty about results that maybe is not necessarily communicated in the way that Google is designed right now. So, but that ends up being a tension because now you're saying that, well, do you actually want our, our design to actually communicate something of uncertainty through the way that the website presents itself? Um, does that you know, confuse users even more? Is that confusion worthwhile? Because maybe it takes mixed users pause and step back and think about, oh, maybe Google is really trying to tell me that it's not entirely sure um, about the results that it's presenting. Uh, but that could be a really fascinating way to explore that. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Um, thank you very much for answering that question as well. Um, and I mean, based on what you were saying, I, I guess our last kind of wrap up question is, um, given that the company and the users are pretty much aware that there, there are issues with bias and misinformation um, in the search engine, what do you believe the company could do to better mediate this? What can Google do to kind of fix this or make it a little bit better? Yeah, I think that's tricky. I think there's so many different directions you can take this. Um, I think one of the things that's, that's hardest to reconcile is all the kind of local and community-based knowledge that I'm thinking about. Things that are not only um, oral traditions that are passed around communities, stuff that's hidden behind like, you know, private Facebook groups, <laughs> I think that are that can be actually incredibly useful knowledge. Knowledge like, you know, hey, who is the best kind of small businesses or small businesses in the area to support? Um, what kinds of services they offer. Like those are all kinds of like less formal knowledge that may be passed around through smaller circles and that may actually be valuable to surface in some way. Though I think, like I was mentioning before, the whole persona of, or the lack thereof of Google may be itself kind of a, a deterrent to having that happen. Like the very fact that you're saying you want to put this deeply personal and private information on this platform owned by a multinational company that's really designed to advertise and sell things. I think those values are fundamentally difficult to align. So I think to some extent, this problem is impossible from the perspective of Google being this one-stop you know, shop for everything, um, one-size-fits-all kind of solution. I think there is a lot of space for more local-oriented groups and local-oriented search, you could imagine, too, that there could be ways in which you may want to actually design search that is more custom-designed for people who are there. And I know there are apps that are trying to you know, leverage that the oldest of being perhaps like Craigslist and like platforms like that, where you are kind of tapping into people's social connections and interests and in having community with the people around them. I think it's also kind of recognizing that. So that's at the very highest level of like, in what ways might we align these kind of knowledge gaps between what's represented on the internet and what's not, at least on the public internet. I think there's also a question of how might we in the current regime of, you know, this all-knowing platform presenting its results, how might we kind of communicate those results better. I know things like platforms like Twitter, prior to all the kind of drama read, um, have looked at how do you kind of like signal that information is truthful? Well, they, they would flag things, but how do you kind of proactively do that? Can you only do it for the most popular things? What about all the kind of like long tail search things? Maybe you can catch like the top 90%, top 95%, but there's still a lot of like these one-off searches where maybe they're surfacing information from the deepest, darkest corners of the web. And you're wondering, how do I actually check that? And I think that goes back to one of the limitations of Google being this extreme broad platform. I think there's space for um, more ways in which we might tap into local communities, ways that that can be connected that way, more than just labeling tech information as true or false or potentially mis misleading. I would want to examine more ways to design around that, but certainly that can be a start. Um, I think there are still lots of questions around how do you even determine that at an algorithmic scale or from an algorithmic perspective? How do you come up with a label for this information. Like, can you even tell that this is like truthful? Do you just go off of people's reporting it? 
um, what if people are trying to brigade in and attack a piece of information? Can that be abused as well? And so I think there's lots of kind of questions around the process and the algorithmic side of designing such a thing on this global scale. And like I mentioned, I think one of the ways you might want to pull back, step back, is think a little about in what ways might we examine different ways of organizing things that aren't from the perspective of a one-size-fits-all technology for the entire world. Yeah, uh, that that also that makes a lot of sense. So basically, you're conveying that Google isn't the one-stop shop for trying to find information online, that it needs to be verified, and that there's more steps to this. And that's kind of what we want our listeners to also understand. So the idea of this podcast isn't to get our listeners to stop using Google. We recognize that's not necessarily the most practical way of going about it, but we want our listeners to use it with awareness and caution. So just elaborating what you previously said, um, do you have any tips for what our users could do to use Google more? effectively or what other platforms they could use to verify their information to kind of mitigate some of these bias and misinformation hazards that do exist on Google. Yeah, I mean, I think I have, um, this is not necessarily a research back result, but I think this is something that I do a lot often when I'm using Google is to use it to search within smaller communities and to recognize who are the people posting within those communities. So there are public like forums like Reddit, Hacker News, Stack Overflow that maybe you've used before as technologists and technology designers. So you you can often do site searches within those. So you can like specify, I want to get results within this website. But also I think once you're doing that to recognize what are the limits of the knowledge of people who are sharing within those websites. Like I oftentimes use like a Reddit site search to say, I search on Google, search within reddit.com, um, best restaurants in Vancouver. Um, and maybe I'll go by different things, but I'll recognize that the people who are posting on Reddit are also limited in terms of knowledge and who are they more likely to represent and what perspectives are they more likely to represent? Um, what areas might I want to frequent otherwise? Like, I think one of the big concerns around um, vitality of cities is around, you know, where do we frequent the businesses we support, right? And that's something I think about a lot when you're thinking about what places to eat. And that's what I do when I do that site search on Reddit is yes, I look at Reddit and, and look at the results that are giving me. But I also think about how are those results like um, spread out across a map? And what areas am I not going to? So um, in the case of Vancouver, I might want to check out downtown east side, which is a more hard hit um, part of the city. Or in the case of Seattle, I might want to go to Central District and check out more restaurants there, uh, places that aren't as frequented that may have fewer people posting there just by the fact that these areas are historically gentrified or, or they have different kinds of population metrics in terms of who is likely to go there and post about their experiences there. So I think there's lots of questions around how can you equitably support businesses, but likewise for things like Stack Overflow, other kinds of areas of information, you would also kind of wonder, you know, where are the communities for the people who are posting there? Who are, whose identities are they representing? And then um, uh, knowing that to guide your information search. Now that of course requires a lot of information about the communities you're searching for. And I think that's still a tricky thing to do. And I think that that's, um, I think that's the approach I've taken it, taken toward it because I feel like I am an expert, at least in the communities I, I participate in within those spaces. Um, but certainly it's a hard problem. And I, I feel like that could be something that could be surfaced because there are probably demographic information about different websites, like who's posting on these websites, who's using them, and then to be able to connect that to Google search. Maybe someone's written a browser extension for it where it's like you can pull down, here's demographic information about who's posting on these websites. And that would then kind of inspire you to think a little bit about, oh, whose identities are being represented on this website when I read these results, whose identities are not. And maybe I should also take a look at those identities too. 
Yeah, that's interesting, actually. And those are definitely important questions that users of Google search should ask themselves. So thank you so much for answering that question as well. Well, that concludes our interview for this segment of the podcast. Thank you so much, Kevin, once again for volunteering to share your thoughts and answer our questions and also debunk some of the myths that are common around algorithmic bias in search engines. And for y'all listening, thank you for tuning in to the expert interview of Searching for the Truth. So something I wanted to bring up as we conclude our podcast was, you know, we've talked about how problematic Google search is. We're not wanting our listeners to really completely stop using this this platform. We know it's very useful. It's pretty accessible to people as well. But I just wanted to mention some alternatives that could really provide more unbiased and accurate search results. Um, One of them is a search engine called DuckDuckGo. And so with DuckDuckGo, normally when you visit a website, that website takes note of really personal information like your IP address, as well as your search history. However, with DuckDuckGo, they take the opposite approach. So it really promises to avoid collecting all of that personal data that search engines like Google normally use. Um, So they can really help the user escape what they call a filter bubble. So DuckDuckGo search results are not customized based on personal preference or search history or location as well. And it really promises to never store the user's history. So every time a user uses DuckDuckGo's browser, they can expect a new search result. So I've actually heard a lot about DuckDuckGo recently. Um, I think, you know, as people are learning more about the biases behind search engines like Google, they're wanting to turn to these other alternatives that they think are more trustworthy. And so DuckDuckGo is definitely um, one of those examples. Something else I thought about was turning to more traditional methods. So maybe going to your local library and looking for information that way, because you really have control over what information you're seeing if you do that. I know at the University of Washington, we have a library database as well, where you can search for different topics you're interested in learning more about, and it'll provide you with those resources. So while I think Google should not be completely eliminated, there are many other alternatives that people should be using, especially as students. Um, I think these three other resources are very useful, have a lot of trustworthy and unbiased information available. So um, yeah, students should definitely be looking at these other resources in addition to using Google and not, I think they really shouldn't continue relying on Google as their sole source of information. Agreed. And I just want to like emphasize, we want users to go forward and use Google being educated, you know, so as we saw in the survey um, that we conducted, Narajna was talking about how like, you know, a lot of people didn't know what BERT was and didn't know that these AI models were being used. And we just want to educate you that they are being used um, so that you can go forward using the solution knowing it's not perfect, which we all know in theory is there, but it's really important to keep in mind when you're using the solution and then also turn to more reliable solutions as Lily has just outlined. Yeah, exactly. I think I think the, the important thing about using Google is to be mindful about how you're using it and what you're using it for, right? So 
um, being able to look at the Google searches and like think critically about what is possibly not accurate information or what is possibly biased and then using these other resources to find accurate information to aid what you've already found on Google would really help. Because if you rely on Google solely, your your search is already narrowed down. So your research is kind of inherently a little bit biased. And then if you have the wrong search results or you have, you're clicking on the wrong things, then the information you're getting is biased and could be inaccurate too. Well, thank you all for listening to Searching for the Truth, where this episode we focused on Google searching algorithms. Have a good day. Thank you.